The Tobacco Master Settlement Agreement was entered in November of 1998, originally between the four largest United States tobacco companies, or as we call them the majors, and the attorney generals of 46 states. The states settled their Medicaid lawsuits against the tobacco industry for recovery of their tobacco-related healthcare costs. In exchange, the companies agreed to curtail or cease certain tobacco marketing practices, as well as pay in perpetuity annual payments to the states to compensate for some of those medical costs of caring for persons with smoking-related illnesses. The money also funds an anti-smoking advocacy group called the Truth Initiative and maintains a public archive of documents resulting from those legal cases. Oklahoma was unique in our approach to the funds. Oklahoma voters made a historic decision in November 2000 to constitutionally set aside and protect the majority of the settlement dollars in an independent endowment trust fund, which yielded multiple benefits to the residents of our state. The statewide ballot question ensured that only the earnings on investments could be spent from the Oklahoma Tobacco Settlement Endowment Trust Fund, or more widely known as TSET. The initiative specified that money could only be used for tobacco prevention, cancer research, and other health-related programs. The Constitution created a detailed governing structure with separate oversight for the endowment trust fund investment and for the grants and programs funded by the earnings from the endowment. One appointed board oversees the endowment's investments and the other oversees the expenditures from the fund with the overall purpose of improving the health and quality of life of Oklahomans. The TSET Healthy Initiative Program for Communities helps cities and towns adopt and implement best practices for tobacco-free environments and encourages an all-around healthy lifestyle to improve quality of life for residents. Every year, TSET invests thousands of dollars in our local communities through these grants. That's why I'm so excited today to have our guest, the Executive Director of TSET, Julie Bisbee. Julie, welcome to the podcast. Great. Thanks for having me. Well, I've been really excited about this conversation. You know what a big fan I am of TSET and everything that you do over there. And you and I have been friends for a long time, so I really enjoyed to have this conversation today. How long have you actually been over at TSET now? Yeah, so I started at TSET in 2012 as the uh, public information officer, uh, you know, coming from the Institute for Child Advocacy. It was right in line for me to work with the public in public service and also um, in prevention. And prior to that, I was a capital reporter. So, um, you know, you get to see how policy impacts people's lives. And it's nice to be on the other end where you get to be a part of impacting, not just observing um, how that all works out. Yeah, actually, just from our friendship, I think it's pretty cool because we first met when you were a reporter and then I was working in the Capitol or in the House Media Office. And then we've kind of had parallel tracks through agencies and, <laughs> and then today at our podcast. So, right. um, but very excited. I think that, uh, I think you are the right person over there and I think you're doing a fantastic job. You know, in in 1998, Drew Edmondson, he really had a vision for these funds, the, the TSET funds. Can you talk about how Oklahoma's approach was really different than what other states were when it came to these kind of funds? Yeah. So, you know, we have the benefit of, you know, coming to the master settlement after other states had settled their own lawsuits. And so through that, you know, um, they were able to see how other states have handled it and kind of make some process improvements. So what Oklahoma did, which is really unique and rare, is we set up a constitutionally protected trust. And that had to go through the legislature. I mean, there was bipartisan support. Governor Keating at the time vetoed the first round. They went back to the drawing board. Um, and so it really had a lot of input from a lot of people of, of this money has come to our state 
because of the harm that tobacco has done and how can we be ensured that it will be used for long-term health benefit and if you remember you know there was a different party in the majority um, over at the legislature during that time and it was really astute on the part of the crafters of that legislation to say you know the legislature has to look at a short-term budget cycle prevention is a long-term investment and so how can we position these funds so that they are not going to kind of be subject to that annual pressure of the budget cycle and still build the prevention infrastructure that we know our state needs and so we are really fortunate that that legislation moved through with bipartisan support lawmakers and um, you know elected officials seeing the long-term vision and voters seeing it as well voters in 2000 approved the state question that amended our constitution to create the endowment to create two separate boards that govern TSET and that oversee the endowment investments. And we continue to be a model for the nation because many states either securitized their MSA payments and took an upfront cash. Well, unfortunately, tobacco use continues to remain a costly problem for a lot of states. So they took that upfront cash. They do not have the benefit of the earnings or the dollars um, to continue to fund prevention or their um, MSA funds simply go into the general fund and are allocated, you know, with all of the other revenue. Um, only Oklahoma really set aside with a future vision and making provision for what we know will be ongoing health crisis. And unfortunately, tobacco is something we are still really working hard as a state to stop. Absolutely. You know, I, I really love the mission of your agency uh, and I think you do incredible work with with the investments. And now we are, are 20 years later in this program and your your programs have really evolved and and have grown over those 20 years. Talk about the, that evolution of your of your TSET programs. Sure. So one of the things, you know, obviously when we started, um, the endowment was just getting started. Payments were coming into the state. And the board of directors made a very um, calculated decision to say, if we're going to make it harder for people to smoke um, by helping to enact smoke-free policies, then we need to give smokers help. And so the first program that we put in place was 1-800-QUIT-NOW, the Oklahoma Tobacco Helpline. And after that, layered in community-based programs because we know that environment really impacts the decisions that we make. So if your environment um, is filled with secondhand smoke and smoking, it's a whole lot harder to say, I'm, I'm not doing that. And then also one of the other best practices, you know, things that other states have done and really seen a return on investment is public education campaigns. So that was kind of the first three, like that formed a comprehensive tobacco control program is, is kind of the public health term for it. And then as we started looking at this, you know, we noticed that our cancer rates, our cancer death rates are higher than other states. Our cardiovascular disease rate and our cardiovascular disease death rate higher than other states. And, you know, the board really took a very strategic look and say, we're in the business of prevention. How do we reverse engineer that so that folks are not showing up to the doctor with these chronic conditions that can be deadly? How can we empower Oklahomans to live healthier lives? And so you've seen them embrace, you know, kind of a, a plan that one always is going to prioritize reducing tobacco use, always. 
but also looking at the risk factors for cancer. And we know that that sedentary lifestyle, poor nutrition, and tobacco use. So in shorthand, when you say eat better, move more, be tobacco-free, that's kind of a behavioral way that you can avoid, you know, higher risks for heart disease, lung disease, um, cancer, and diabetes. Um, and so that's really the, the framework that they've looked at. And, you know, our community-based programs, whether that's a, a grant, um, you know, a healthy living grant in your community or an incentive grant, are really looking at how can we create communities that are going to provide opportunities for people to make healthy choices. Um, and that's that's kind of where we're at with that. We also have invested in cancer research because that's central to our constitutional language um, and have helped to bring a National Cancer Institute center to the state, which means that Oklahomans can get cutting edge care close to home. They're not traveling to Houston. They're not traveling out of state for, you know, a long-term cancer treatment. They're able to do that. They're able to go home. They're able to be with their family and their support network. Um, and so those are some of the ways that our work has helped to impact the state. Yeah, I want to I want to talk about the, the the cancer research. That's a Stevenson Cancer C uh, Research Center. Is that correct? Yeah, Stevenson Cancer, Cancer Center. Center. <laughs> now, I say what just how incredible that is that you partner with them, but you're you're about to explain it better. So go ahead. <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, that is one of our three research grants, and our dollars have been instrumental in helping to get a phase one clinical trial program to our state. Um, and what that means is those are new therapies, new treatments for people with cancer. So when all other traditional you know, means of treating cancer have been exhausted. Patients are able to come to Stevenson and have hope. And a lot of them, you know, really see that as something that had they not been a part of this trial, you know, they may not be celebrating that next birthday. And so it's it's tremendously impactful um, to talk to those folks. And so we, we have been a partner with Stevenson over the years and our funding really has kind of been a cornerstone that has allowed them to develop and grow and to get those outside National Cancer Institute dollars and National Institute for Health dollars, um, really looking at how do you improve cancer treatment in our state? How do you improve the quality of life for survivors? And then how do you reduce risk so that there are fewer people contracting cancer in our state. In addition, you know, um, Stevenson has a statewide focus. And so they have sites across the state where folks can get their chemo um, treatment. So they're not having, having to travel to the city from, you know, a, a far off place, but they are able to get that care, be home and celebrate all of those milestones with their family. Now, is that only for Oklahoma residents or do they treat? It's not. No, I mean, um, it's an NCI center. So NCI has just a handful of really, you know, kind of top tier treatment centers that also increases the research dollars and um, kind of the expertise. And it's a regional center. So folks drive here from Missouri for very specific trials that are offered um, at Stevenson. I know they pull patients from Texas. Um, I mean, primarily their population is Oklahomans, but it's also something that if there is a promising therapy for, you know, a specific type of cancer, patients are likely to travel to where they can get the best care. Well, that's that is pretty incredible. So probably your most uh, visible program is the Oklahoma Tobacco Helpline. We all see see the great commercials that you guys do. 
uh, for those uh, who are listening that really don't know who that how that works, can you explain the tobacco helpline? And then also, I guess the same question as last one, is that one only for Oklahomans? Yeah, so uh, 1-800-QUIT-NOW is the number that anyone in Oklahoma can call and get registered for tobacco cessation coaching and nicotine replacement therapy. It's free. Um, if you have insurance, sometimes your insurance will pick it up. But our primary goal is to get you the coaching and the cessation treatment that you need. Um, every state has a 1-800-QUIT-NOW, and um, it is operated by various entities within those states. We are the primary funder of the Oklahoma Tobacco Helpline. And last year, we served more than 28,000 Oklahomans and helped them quit. Um, we meet or exceed national benchmarks for quit rate for Oklahomans using tobacco. And that's a follow-up survey six, seven months out to say, are you still smoke-free? Um, and I think that that's a pretty powerful number. We know, unfortunately, that um, too many Oklahomans continue to smoke. And this is a way that you can say this help is always available 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 1-800-QUIT-NOW. Um, you can also get email, text, um, supporting as well to kind of coach you through the process. Most smokers have to quit six, seven times before they are successful. Um, and so we're always promoting these services, trying to remove barriers and also reminding people that quitting takes practice. You know, try again if you were not successful the first time. Well, it's a it's a pretty great program, um, and I think you guys do a good job of, of marketing it as well. So, in from a rural perspective in Oklahoma, uh, especially from from a municipal standpoint, when we look at rural Oklahoma and the decline of rural Oklahoma, we there's three factors that are really contributing to that. One is a lack of educational opportunities lack of economic development and job opportunities, and then also lack of health care, which is becoming more critical in this state. Now, I know you also uh, partner with the Physicians Manpower Training Commission uh, to help get rural uh, doctors into rural Oklahoma. I'd like to know a little bit more about that program. Yeah, so that's been a, a partnership that we've had over the years where um, it was really looking at Texas and saying, why are all of our physicians leaving for Texas? What's happening? Why are we draining talent? And looking at the program that they have, and it's an incentive um, for doctors. If they come, they get a certain amount of money that will help pay off their loans. So we took a look at that. Um, the Physician Manpower Training Commission amended it, you know, made it very Oklahoma. And over the years um, have worked to get doctors across the state. So right now we have up to 42 doctors that will be serving across the state by the end of this year um, as part of that program. TSET helps to support the Oklahoma Medical Loan Repayment Program. Doctors who serve in underserved areas for up to four years can get $200,000 towards their medical school loans. And I think the average physician is looking at you know, $300,000 um, for their medical school loans. But what is really awesome about this program is that it is connecting people who have a heart for community medicine, moving that barrier of, you know, kind of I need that more advanced salary that a specialist might get and connecting them to communities where they end up staying. More than 50 percent of the doctors that have been placed through the loan repayment program continue to practice in a rural and underserved areas. So. For some folks, that may mean returning to their hometown and taking care of their friends and neighbors. For others, 
it may be falling in love with a small town Oklahoma community and deciding this is where you want to put down roots. I mean, I know I've talked to doctors who have moved here from New York State, Louisiana, who just find life in communities in Oklahoma is something that they want to have. And this is an incentive that brings them here, but also helps keep them. And we know that doctors in our local communities are vital to keeping hospitals open, but they also are an economic driver. I think the Physician Manpower Training Commission estimates that a physician has a million dollar impact per year based on all of the things that are built around having a rural doctor in place. And so we're proud to support that. We've partnered um, in some communities like with the medical um, State Medical Association or um, different communities may put up the community match. So it is truly, you know, kind of a public-private partnership. Mayors know you've got to have healthcare. You've got to have a physician um, to continue to be marketable. And this is one way that we are helping with that. And also, you know, addressing the shortage of physicians in our state. These are doctors that want to do community medicine. They want to be in a rural area and they want to be a part of that community. And we're really thrilled to be a part of bringing all of those forces together for good. You want to hear something funny that it was a program like that is actually the reason why I'm in Oklahoma. My, uh, in the, in the forties, my uncle Tony, uh, was doctor or just graduated from medical school in Chicago and Oklahoma had an incentive to, to attract for rural doctors and being the good Italian family that we are when one moves, they all move. So my entire family packed up from, from Chicago and moved down here and my dad met my mom and the rest is history. So, for, so I'm, right. so I'm really excited about this program. You never know how, the, how it's going to touch people's lives. So truly, truly. It's really fantastic to hear, you know, well, like I know there's a doctor down in McCurtain County. He's like, I grew up with these people and I'm just so honored to take care of them. And then, you know, in Pittsburgh County, um, we have a doctor who was in the military and he and his wife both, they could work and live anywhere and they're choosing McAllister because of all of those things. So it, it is, it's, it's truly fantastic. Yeah. You know, uh, just to add on my story, he, my, my uh, uncle went to Atoka and he was Charles McCall, Speaker McCall's doctor growing up as his family doctor. And, and uh, so it's funny. And then Charles and I were mayors together. And now, of course, he's the speaker. Yeah. But that was our first introduction that he recognized the last name from my from my uncle. So small uh, world. It is. It is one of the I, I, I talked about it in, in the opening, but the uh, healthy incentive program for communities. Every year, um, I always get excited because you guys come to the OML annual conference, and unfortunately, we didn't get to do that this year, and we hand out big checks, which is always the most fun thing to do, uh, but you you invest thousands of dollars every year in those uh, grants into our municipalities, and our municipalities are very thankful about it, um, and I know a lot more would like to apply for those funds, so can you talk about that particular program and how uh, municipalities would go about applying? Sure. So the first thing they need to get to do to learn more about the grant program is go to tset.ok.gov. And we have tabs there for the Healthy Communities Incentive Grant. Um, we're currently in an open funding period that closes September 15th. But when you go there, you can look at the criteria that are required for the application. And these are incentive grants. Um, this came out uh, this idea was born from listening sessions done across the state with schools and communities to say, 
what barriers are out there that are preventing you from being a partner in health or, or what makes it hard to change the environment to support health? And all of them came back and said, we can't, we don't have the, you know, unrestricted funds to do these types of programs and things like that. And so um, the grant program was formed where schools and communities pass policy, but first they take a look at that criteria and say, how do we measure up? Which I think that alone is a fantastic exercise for leaders in a community to say, we are invested in the quality of life of the people who live here. We want to do good for them. How are we doing on health? And some of them may see policies that they think, okay, that's that's not something that we can do at this time, but that's a goal to work toward. Communities that are successful in getting the policies in place, so that may be a tobacco-free city property ordinance or, you know, making sure that you're working with your schools on safe routes to schools. Can our young and old walk to the places that they need to be? Um, those kind of policies, you get those in place, you have the buy-in, and then you are able to apply for the grant. And those dollars come to the city. Um, those decisions on projects, types of things to do are made at the local level. We have a framework. You know, we want it to be a project that's accessible to everyone that's going to support health. Um, we like for communities to take a look at some of their underserved parts of their community and say, what would we infuse to promote health here? Um, but at the end of the day, a lot of those decisions or those ideas are bubbled up from the local community. So we've had folks, you know, work with us with their school to redo the playground that has a shared use policy in place so that families can go there on the weekends and get that. Um, we have a fantastic project where a school and a community partnered to redo their walking track. So it's a track that can be used by the school athletics. But during the school day, or on the weekends, it's a place for our senior citizens to get their physical activity in. And so those are the kind of things that we're seeing out there. And it's, it's been really fantastic to see um, how mayors and city councils are really looking at this and saying, this is something that we can do. This is something we want to do. And we're able to make change, but also help educate people on what is all of our role in supporting healthy communities and healthy schools. And so we're really excited about that project. So like I said, the um, incentive grant open funding period closes September 15th. Um, funding is limited, first come, first serve. Um, but we do anticipate, you know, if all of those funds are not exhausted through this September application period, having a second application period um, that will likely open in January. I just saw a really interesting, I think that you guys put out an interesting story about uh, Haleyville and Haleyville is an interesting case because they, it's such a small community and they were devastated by a tornado. They had just built a new farmer's market. I remember when all that happened and uh, over the past two years, I think you guys have put close to $30,000 in that community. They were able to rebuild their farmer's market that they were very proud of that the tornado took away and I think three parks. Uh, that's a major investment for a community that size. Uh, it truly, it truly is. And, you know, our grant funds for communities, especially the smaller communities, you know, they're going to be, you know, kind of conservative amounts of money. But what we have seen is that that funding attracts other funding. Um, you know, the county may come in and say, we'll, we'll give you the gravel or um, business community may come together and say, we can match that and do more. 
And, um, you know, that is truly fantastic as well because you're bringing more people together to support improving quality of life for residents. And, and Haleyville is a great example of that. I mean, really want to help keep rural Oklahoma vital um, because we know that in the rural areas, tobacco use is higher, obesity is higher, and it takes that community support to create those opportunities for healthy choices. And, and that's a really good example. And, you know, streetscape, yeah, you're making your downtown a destination again. You see your sales tax receipts go up. People are walking to the post office instead of driving around the block. You've created a destination that continues to add to the charm of our communities across Oklahoma. And I think that the health aspect is important and more of our municipalities are being respectful of that as they do this planning. Uh, we do a lot of community planning for, for uh, cities and towns at OML and that's always now one of the, the factors that we put in there. And I will tell you that 10 years ago or well, over 10 years ago when I was a mayor, I, I don't think that we we put it into our community planning back then. So, and I think you guys have, I think there's, it's a, a direct from from some of the work that you guys have done why we look at it this way so Julie do you do you know uh, right offhand how much money you have invested in municipalities in this program yeah so since um, 2012 we've given out 162 grants to communities across the state amounting to about 4.5 million dollars over time um, those dollars are leveraged with local projects um, you know leveraging an additional 2.6 million. So all of that is being invested in our communities um, to projects that improve the quality of life for residents, but also help bring mayors, city councils, and other community leaders to the table to talk about what are, what are the current aspects of quality of life in our community and what would we like to improve or build on. So it's a significant, um, partnership, but it's been really fantastic to see how communities have really embraced this. It is truly, you know, how can you infiltrate conversations that are happening at the local level? Mayors have a lot to worry about, right? You've got your budget, you've got your streets, the trash, you know, but this is a nice thing that you get to do. It's a, it's a, I can do this. It's not a have to infrastructure piece, but it is really a nod to saying, we want people to enjoy being in this community and we want to do more than just the bare minimum of providing that infrastructure. I would also say, you know, having those quality places for families to go and gather and be active is even more important now as we're in this COVID environment. You know, I think um, the Association of County Governments in Oklahoma saw like a 150% increase in their walking trails in May. People are using those amenities. They want them, you know, um, getting out there. And we've got mayors that do walks. You know, I think the Collinsville neighbor mayor is um, very active in encouraging people because ultimately, and, and you know, those, those community improvements, they benefit our youngest and our oldest the most. You and me, we can get in a car and we can drive somewhere and, and you know, get on with life, but it is our youngest and our oldest really, really benefit from those infrastructure improvements. And those are the people we need to be looking out for. Absolutely. I, I always argue this, and I will do it again next week in an interim study on municipal funding that out of all the other areas of government, the one area that we are actually in charge of in municipal government is 
the quality of life of the residents because the majority of people, over 80% of residents live in a municipality. So that's where they work, raise their kids, worship, have fun with their friends, but most of all call home. So I always say we're in charge of quality of life. So that's why these grants make so much sense for our, for our municipal government because they are a direct impact and improvement to quality of life. Okay, I have one more thing I wanna, wanna talk about today. Um, I know there is a, uh, there's state question 814 on the ballot in less than a month and it, it could potentially make some changes to your agency. Can you tell us what that that's gonna do? We're not do, yeah. I suppose. <laughs> Yeah, no. Um, so state question 814 um, was put on the ballot through a legislative uh, referendum, a joint resolution that passed both houses with a majority. And um, it seeks to reduce the annual contribution to the endowment. Um, currently, Big Tobacco still makes a payment to our state. And 75% um, of that annual payment is deposited into the endowment. 25% is already going to the legislature. And um, the funds that go into the endowment are invested and TSET only uses the earnings from the investments to fund grants and programs. And so uh, it's really, you know, the MSA payments come to the state as long as cigarettes are sold nationally. And the trends that we're seeing in tobacco use is that fewer people are smoking, which is a win, which is fantastic. Um, however, uh, you know, they may be migrating to an e-cigarette device. And so while fewer people are inhaling a combustible nicotine delivery, um, more people are still addicted to nicotine. And I think that that's important to note because we are still learning what those long-term health consequences are. So, in terms of if that state question were to pass, obviously the contribution to the state's investment for health, the state's investment fund for health would be decreased. And I think that it is a logical thing to assume that when you decrease your contribution to your investment, that you will likely see a decrease in your available earning. And, um, you know, so, that, so that's something that we're really keeping an eye on um, because TSET is funding prevention infrastructure. We're funding a helpline. We're funding grants that get doctors to communities. Um, we're funding a variety of programs that continue to address health and support cost avoidance for health care. Um, and so I think that those are things that um, people are you know, going to have to think about when they're taking a look at this state question um, because it's a declining source of revenue, um, but it does speak to the wisdom of the endowment that the majority of the annual payment is being invested for the future under the current constitutional language. Well, then I think my advice to voters is that they, they take a hard look at that state question uh, and just see what is important to them. Uh, and, the, and the future of Oklahoma. So today we've been talking with Executive Director of TSET, Julie Bisbee. Julie, it was really great to talk to you today. I hope that we can do this again in the future sometime. Yes, thank you so much.